If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis, Genesis chapter 45. We're picking up in the middle of a story of Joseph and his brothers. Joseph's been sold down into Egypt. He's gone through humiliation, thrown into prison, been elevated over Egypt, coming out of prison, interpreting Pharaoh's dreams, set up over Egypt. His brothers have come down during the famine to get food, sent them back home with orders to bring Benjamin down. Uh, Benjamin comes down with the brothers and uh, Joseph sets up an elaborate plot, puts the cup in Benjamin's sack, accuses him of theft. And uh, they, they've just come back and Judah has pled for uh, the freedom of his brother. Keep me and your place. That's where we're picking up. Judah's just finished speaking. And then this is the word of God. Genesis 45, beginning at verse one. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine had been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan. And take your father and your households and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, Do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes. But to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan, to their father Jacob. 
And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's ask the Lord's help in prayer as we come to the preaching of the word. O God, we pray that you would make your word a swift word, passing from our ears to our hearts, that as the rain does not return void from watering the earth, so may your word not return void unto you, but may it accomplish the plans and purposes for which you have sent it forth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It's in the Lord's providence that most days of life aren't holidays. It would be nice to bottle up all the good feelings and picturesque moments from Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter and uncork them little by little, day by day. It sounds nice if life would be a year-round vacation, free from worries and anxieties and stress, like a camping trip with a six-month-old. The reality is far different. Many days are filled with toil and sweat and burdens, difficulties. The passing seasons of life bring as many downs as they do ups. Suffering is as much a part of life as rejoicing is. And God's providence leads us into trials as well as into seasons of rest. But in those seasons of trial, in those seasons of testing, when our faith is under attack and when doubts easily arise, when questions go unanswered, and when guilt-fueled shame is our constant companion, one thing remains the same. God still sits upon his throne, carrying out his plans and his purposes. Genesis 45 continues a uh, chapters-long discourse on the providence of God at work in the lives of his people, as seen in the story of Joseph and his brothers. The brokenness and tragedy of sin has crashed down upon this family, and they're on the verge of disaster. For as I said a moment ago, Benjamin stood accused as a thief with irrefutable evidence of his guilt. Joseph's master plan uh, to expose his, the guilt of his brothers for selling him into slavery so long ago ha- had run its course. This was the final test. What will be the outcome? What does God speak into the lives of this suffering, struggling family? Well, the truth that we learn in Genesis 45 that spoke into the lives of these men long ago and continues to speak to us today is this. Jesus, the risen Lord, calls those grieved and dismayed by sinful choices to draw near to him in faith. Jesus, the risen Lord, calls those grieved and dismayed by sinful choices to draw near to him in faith. And as we look at this story this morning, we're going to see five movements in the story, five ways in which this chapter sets this truth before us. 
First, we'll notice the initial dismay before the risen Lord. Second, we'll look at the providential purposes of the risen Lord. Third, we'll focus upon the authoritative command of the risen Lord. Fourth, we'll consider the exhaustive provisions of the risen Lord. And fifth, we'll see the biblical response to the risen Lord. The initial dismay, the providential purposes, the authoritative command, the exhaustive provisions, and the biblical response to the risen Lord. So first, notice with me the initial dismay before the risen Lord. Look back with me at verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. I like Joseph for many reasons. Among other things, it deflates the idea that manly men can't be emotional. Multiple times in the previous chapters, Joseph's emotions had boiled up inside of him and finally they've reached the the boiling over point. So great was his love for his brothers that the the dam could no longer hold back the flood of tears. And verse 1 explains the intimacy of this moment. All the Egyptians sent away. This level of emotion was reserved for those who were relationally united to Joseph. This kind of love was not on display for all of Egypt. Yes, Joseph was ruler over all Egypt. Yes, he was taking care of all the people underneath that rule. But they didn't get this kind of emotion. This kind of love was not on display from others from the surrounding nations, others from the land of Canaan coming to Egypt to to buy grain. This love was for his family. Joseph, so long disguised and hidden from his brothers, so long separated from his family. At this point, it had been some 22 years since Joseph had been sold into slavery. 22 years of separation. 22 years of longing. He finally revealed himself. I am Joseph. I am Joseph. You expect at this moment celebration. But the response to this revelation was not quite what you might expect. Verse 3 says the brothers were dismayed at his presence. That word for dismay conveys the idea of deep distress. Isaiah 21 uses it to speak of a woman in labor. Job 21 uses it to describe the cold shudder that runs up and down your spine at the news of disaster. Psalm 30 and Psalm 104 use this word to describe the state of those from whom the face of the Lord has been hidden. There's terror here. There's pain. There's despair. Not necessarily the uh, type of emotion you would expect at a long-needed family reunion. Unless, of course, there's been much guilt concerning that brother. Remember where we're at in the story. Joseph had designed a series of tests to see if his brother's character had changed over those 22 years from when they sold him into slavery. 
setting up reminders in subtle ways to bring to mind, oh, wait, we did that to Joseph. We did that to Joseph. We did that to Joseph. Setting up this test with Benjamin, the other favored son of Jacob, to see if they would treat Benjamin the same way they treated Joseph. And through those tests, in in Genesis 42 and again in Genesis 44, the, the brothers admitted that God has set before them their guilt for their sin. Their crimes had been exposed for all to see. And Joseph, as he reveals himself, doesn't deny their guilt. He pointedly stated who he was once again. I'm Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Confirmation, once again, of their guilt. And verse 5 tells us what accompanied their dismay over their guilt. Distress and anger with themselves. That word for distress has been a key word in Genesis. The first time it shows up is Genesis 6. When it says that God was distressed, God was grieved over the wickedness of humanity. So grieved that he determined to destroy the earth with a flood. The second major time it shows up is in the lives of Joseph's brothers when they heard of the rape of their sister Dinah and they were grieved and angry over what Shechem had done. The word carries the depth of sorrow that an abandoned wife would feel. Often this grief is accompanied by physical pain both in the dismay and in the grief, where we see this connection of of feeling it so deeply that your body is racked by physical pain. In Scripture, this word was often associated with sin and disgrace and death. A, A word designed to convey the depths of God's displeasure with sin. For Isaiah 63 verse 10 speaks of the Holy Spirit being grieved. And as I said earlier, Genesis 6 speaks of God being grieved. Deep, emotional words. The brothers felt the depths of sorrow that racked their bodies because their actions stood worthy of condemnation like the wicked men of old destroyed by the flood. They stood worthy of slaughter like the men of Shechem whom they had slaughtered. And the one whom they had figuratively slaughtered by their actions in selling him into Egypt now stood before them as if he was risen from the dead. I say that because just one chapter earlier, in Genesis 44, verse 20, they had described their actions as resulting in the death of Joseph. Now the one whom they thought was dead stood alive and well before them in the place of authority over them where he could pronounce judgment upon them. A judgment which they deserved. Dismay and grief and anger don't even begin to express their plight. The emotions these brothers felt were the same ones encapsulated by Peter as he preached at Pentecost to those who had crucified Jesus. You killed him with wicked hands, but God raised Jesus from the dead and he sits upon the throne as judge and ruler over all. It's a frightening place to be. Guilty of crucifying the Lord of glory, condemned by the very one you nailed to the cross. But it's the place where we each stand. For it was our sins that nailed him there. It was the wrath which we deserved which crucified Jesus. 
And this morning, we're in the presence, as we gather here, we're in the presence of the one who was dead but is now alive, and he is in the place of judge over all. And if the only sight we have this morning of the risen Lord was the sight that the brothers had of Joseph at the beginning of this chapter, the risen Lord over Egypt, ready to condemn them, and the sight that the men in Acts 2 had of Jesus, of them being guilty of crucifying the risen Lord, then there can only be dismay, for that ruler will justly crush us. Perhaps that is where you're at this morning. You come to church each week, you gather in the presence of Jesus, yet you do not view him with love, you only view him with dread. You feel the condemning gaze of a judge whom you have wronged. And you find yourself asking what those men asked long ago. How am I to be delivered? What am I going to do to be saved? Well, to answer that question, we move to our second consideration. And second, consider with me the providential purposes of the risen Lord. Back to verse 5. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over the land of Egypt. Questions abound when sinful choices are made. Spouses look at each other and ask how the other could betray them. Parents look at children, wondering how they could disobey them. We look inward at ourselves, wondering how we could have done something so awful. And while Joseph bluntly acknowledged the blame which his brothers bore, you sold me here, he moved past that, to a re, uh, past that reality to a fundamental truth that perhaps brings some unease to us. Don't be distressed or angry because God sent me before you to preserve life. Three times in verses 5 through 8. Joseph emphasized this reality. God sent me. God sent me. It was not you who sent me, but God. And Joseph's answer can raise a whole host of unanswerable questions. God's providence often does that to us. Why do things happen the way they do? Why do evil things happen to innocent people? Why did God allow this tragedy in my life? Why did God allow suffering? Why does God allow this betrayal? Why did God allow that sin? Why did God allow sin at all? That's the question we ask in Genesis 3. As Adam and Eve sinned and plunged the world to destruction and death because of their sin. Why did God allow that to happen? James tells us, in his epistle, that God is not the author of sin. So we know that God's purposes did not cause sin. But can we still give a definitive answer to the plans and the purposes of God? As Isaiah asks in Isaiah 40, whom did God consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? No one. Or as Romans 11 questions, who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? No one. 
We cannot ascertain all that God is doing in our lives or has done in history or will do in history, but there is one thing that we can ascertain. God does what he does to preserve the lives of his people. You all sinned because you sold me here, but God was sending me before you to preserve you. Verse 7 defines that preservation even further. God sent Joseph to Egypt to preserve uh, for his covenant family a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. We're reminded of the flood. It didn't have many survivors, but it had survivors, the ark being that preservation of life. Now here's Joseph, another ark to preserve God's people. And that word remnant becomes a very key word in the Old Testament and into the New Testament. It speaks of God's chosen people uh, uh, saved from the mass of rebellious humanity. Sometimes they're small in number, like Elijah and the 7,000 in Israel during Ahab's reign. Sometimes they're large in number. The entire nation of Judah under Hezekiah returning to the Lord. But always, it speaks of God's chosen people who would be delivered in the day of his wrath and then elevated to rule with the Messiah. Joseph's task was to set up a place for the remnant, for God's covenantally chosen people, a a refuge where their lives would be preserved. The sinful actions of humans turned into the salvation of God's chosen people. Here is this man, Joseph, who had traveled the path of humiliation by slavery to exaltation over Egypt, sent by God himself to deliver God's chosen people from certain death, one who was thought to be dead but is now the risen Lord to save, one who was sent to prepare a place for God's people. The language is almost identical to that which Jesus used of himself in John 14 in the upper room as he comforted the troubled hearts of his disciples they were grieved they were confused they questioned what was going on in their lives let not your hearts be troubled i go to prepare a place for you i go to set up a place for you i go to die and rise again for you god's remnant people as peter would later say in acts what men meant for evil god meant for good for salvation Wicked men wickedly crucified Jesus, but Jesus' crucifixion for our salvation. And that is the mystery of God's providence, brothers and sisters. For all that we cannot understand about the sinful actions of others or our own sinful actions, what we can understand this is that God is working in our lives and means it for our good. Whatever it is in our lives, God means it for good. As others sin against us, as we feel the guilt of our past sins, as we struggle to understand the calamity around us, God, through Jesus, the risen Lord, means it for our good. It doesn't justify our sin or anybody else's. That doesn't eliminate sin's presence in our lives. It doesn't mean we won't ever experience the bitter consequences of sin, but it does give hope where sin has entered in. God means to work something good in our lives despite sin's evil. You sold me into Egypt, but God sent me before you. The providential purposes of the risen Lord. 
Third, notice with me the authoritative command of the risen Lord. Verse 9. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, and you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. In light of God's providential purposes that had sent Joseph into Egypt, he had one simple command. Come down to me. We see the basis of the authority behind the command in verse 9. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. It was as the divinely exalted Lord that Joseph made the command. We also see the urgency in this command. Come down to me. Do not tarry. He repeats this urgency three times. Hurry and go up to my father. Do not tarry. And again in verse 13, hurry. No time to waste. The famine's going to last another five years. There's an urgency to receive the necessary provisions for life. Been 22 long years of separation, so there's an urgency to be reconciled. Jacob was near death. He's old. The urgency to come down before he died. Do not delay. Do not tarry. We also see the affection in this command. Back in verse 4, Joseph spoke to his brothers with a similar command. Come near to me, please. While there's an authoritative command, that authority comes on the wings of familial love. There's, there's tenderness in these words. There's, there's no hard pushing away of brothers who had wronged him. Just a simple invitation to come near and receive the love. There's also a promise with this command. You'll dwell in Goshen and your children and your children's children. A command that would not only affect Jacob, but would affect all of Jacob's offspring for good. And finally, there's an assurance in this command. Your eyes see. Benjamin's eyes see. You must tell my father of what your own eyes have told you, that it's true. Assure him that I'm alive, that there's provision in Egypt. <laughs> and in case his father doesn't trust the, uh, the older ten brothers, he had good reason not to, he'll, he'll listen to Benjamin. Draw near to me. Come to me. It is perhaps one of the most repeated commands in Scripture. A command given by God himself, spoken with all the authority of the one who created all things. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Come, buy without money, no price. The affectionate, tender invitation of Jesus himself to those who are weary and brokenhearted. Scattered like sheep without a shepherd, come to me, and I will give you rest. It comes with all the assurance of God behind it. He who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. A promise not just for us, but for our children as well. Let the little children come to me. And there's an urgency in this command, for today is the day of salvation. Yet as simple as this command is... <laughs> 
we find ourselves resisting it so much. You see the folly of, of Joseph's brothers if they had not listened to Joseph? Imagine staying in Canaan in the famine, watching their family waste away, starve. Imagine refusing the mercy of Joseph. How foolish would it have been for his brothers to go home and not come back with their father? How self-destructive that would be. Yet that's what we do when we refuse to come to Jesus. We destroy ourselves and hurt all those around us who love us. Why resist the call of grace? What benefit is there from not listening to the command of Jesus? You can only find healing. You can only find grace. You can only find forgiveness. You can only find life-giving salvation when you come to Jesus. The command of the risen Lord. Fourth, consider with me the exhaustive provisions of the risen Lord. Verses 16 through 24, you see Pharaoh reiterating Joseph's command. I'll give you the best of the land, verse 18. You'll eat of the fat of the land. Take wagons. Bring your father. Come. Don't worry about your goods. All the best of Egypt's before you. They take the wagons according to the command of Pharaoh, gave them provisions for the journey, verse 21. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. And to his father he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with good things of Egypt, 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. The invitation of Joseph has the full weight of Egypt thrown behind it to enable his family to come down. An immensely generous provision, the best of the land of the flocks, wagon loads of provisions. Remember, they're in the middle of a famine. Two years there hadn't been plowing or, or harvesting, five more years of famine. You wouldn't know it for the wagon train that's going out of Egypt for Jacob. There's the changes of clothing given to Joseph's brothers. That, that may not sound significant to you, but if you go back and read beginning in Genesis 37 through Joseph's life, at every stage of Joseph's story, clothing has been a key indicator of the story's progress. Joseph, given a coat of many colors to symbolize jo uh, Jacob's favor, that coat stripped from him by his brothers when they sold him into slavery. Then Joseph winds up in prison as he's brought out of prison, he's given new clothing to come into Pharaoh's presence. And then he's given even more exalted clothing as he's raised to second in command over all Egypt. And now Joseph gives to the brothers who had stripped his clothing, he gives them clothing. A sign of favor, a sign of reconciliation, a sign of God's generous abundance. Nothing left out that these men needed. No, no need left undone. All was provided for. Joseph gave a command, come down. And then he provided everything necessary for his brothers and his father to obey that command. Come down to Egypt. Here, here are your provisions for the way. Throughout Joseph's story, he acts in different ways that remind us of the ways in which God acts. 
Joseph uh, is described by Pharaoh. Is there such a man in whom the wisdom and discernment of the spirit rest? Can we find such a man as wise as this? Joseph displaying godlike wisdom. The brothers come before him and he seats them in birth order at the, at the feast table. I had somebody in my congregation do the math on that. It's one three hundred millionth of a possibility of no one with prior knowledge seating them in birth order on the first try. Joseph acting as Lord of Egypt. They don't know he's Joseph. Displaying godlike knowledge. And now here, Joseph displays godlike power. What God commands, he enables. What God commands, he gives abundant provision so his people can do. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. In Jesus, scripture tells us we've received all that we need for life and godliness. For our justification and our sanctification and our glorification. No part of life unprovided for in Jesus. Which means whether you struggle with something at work or in your marriage or in your singleness or in your church, there is nothing in your life to which you can point and say, God has left me on my own here. God has not made adequate provision for me in this stage of life, in this relationship of life. No, Paul tells us in Philippians, whether in great need or in great abundance, I have learned to be content for my God will supply all my needs in Christ Jesus. That's the testimony that Paul writes of in Ephesians 4, particularly as it relates to Jesus as the risen Lord. He's ascended to heaven, leading captivity captive, and he's given gifts to men. Gifts that Ephesians goes on to say, come through the pouring out of his Holy Spirit, gifts for the edification of his people, for the work of the ministry of the church, to build up everyone, each single person here in their faith, to make them more into the image of their Savior, Jesus Christ. The exhaustive provision of the risen Lord. We're reminded of that exhaustive provision as we come to the Lord's table. A feast spread before a weary people. A feast designed to strengthen us for life in this world. A feast where we are reminded of the authoritative command of Jesus. For he stands at the door and knocks. And if anyone will open the door, he will come into them and eat and drink with them. An invitation to come to Jesus and understand something of the workings of God's providence. We may not understand all the last detail of what is happening in our lives, but as we come to the table, there is the promise of a better understanding of God's grace that is at work in us in Jesus. There is the promise of reconciliation with God and reconciliation with those around us. The promise of healing, the promise of forgiveness, the promise of joy, the promise of provision, the promise of strengthening, provisions for the journey of life in the next week. So what is to be our response to the provisions of the risen Lord? We see it at the end of the chapter 5th. Notice with me the biblical response to the risen Lord. Verse 25, So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. 
But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived, and Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. This chapter ends as only a story with Jacob involved can end. Jacob, constantly at war with himself, a bit of a pessimistic doom and gloom outlook on life, the man who was so sure that everything in life was against him, received the news that Joseph was alive and ruled Egypt and his heart became numb and he refused to believe. He had learned to distrust his sons so much and his sons had proved so untrustworthy that he could not believe their good news. It was too good to believe. But they repeated their story and Jacob saw the provisions and his perspective changed. And we see that perspective change in a key way in verse 28 for the text switches from Jacob, that name associated with weakness and deceit and sin, to the God-given name of Israel. Jacob saw and Israel said, I'll go down. Signifying the covenant mercy which Jacob had received, signifying the faith which Jacob had in God's saving purposes. This was the wrestle of Jacob's life at Peniel as he met with the angel and wrestled with him. Bless me. I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. God appeared to him at Bethel. I will bless you. Your name is Israel. The wrestling of faith, the wrestling of physical sight versus spiritual sight. And as Jacob wrestles one more time, he concludes, it is enough. I will go and see Joseph before I die. The contrast is striking. He did not believe until he saw. So reminiscent of Thomas when he received the news of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. I won't believe it. I can't believe it unless I can put my my fingers in his hands and, and, and my hand in his side. Unless I can see the wounds, I I won't, it's not true. The risen Lord and the grace which he offers are too good to believe unless I can see some physical demonstration. And the risen Jesus appeared to Thomas and said, put your finger here and see my hands. Don't disbelieve, but believe. Have you believed because you saw? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. Do not disbelieve, but believe. That's our response. As we come to the table, that's our response. Don't disbelieve, but believe. A a reminder for our physical eyes of the provisions that we are given spiritually in Jesus. Don't disbelieve, but believe. That's to be our attitude toward God's salvation and God's providence. That's to be our disposition before the risen Lord. In this you rejoice, Peter says in 1 Peter 1, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of what you believe, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls.
That is the story of Jacob and his sons tested by severe trial. Tested so that their sin might be burned away. Grieved for a time by various trials, yet the result led to the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of the Messiah so many years later. The revelation of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, that's our story. Our life here on earth, attesting through fire. Grieved by various trials that we might obtain the outcome of what we believe. We have not seen him with our physical eyes, yet there is a blessing upon us, the blessing of the risen Lord himself, the blessing which calls us here today to behold him with eyes of faith as we eat and drink, to rejoice at the outcome of our faith, our salvation. And so the question that comes to you this morning is the question that came to Jacob when he heard the report. Will you believe? Will you say it is enough that Jesus died? I will go down to him and see him with my own eyes. Will you come near and find the grace of the risen Lord? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we prepare now to come near, we pray that your spirit would seal your word to our hearts and that we would rejoice as we draw near to you, that you draw near to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.